Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the living word. You have words of eternal life. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would make the connections between the words that we sing and we share and we read this morning and our lives. We ask you'd go on transforming us. Because we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's still signs, as you can see, from the fabulous wedding that we had here yesterday. Buckets of flowers. It was, it was great. We had a fabulous wedding here yesterday. John Slater and Becky Bresnan, um, members of our church, declaring before God, family and friends, that I will love you until my dying day. And we had not only flowers, but we had trees, and uh, Becky looked radiant, and John was the perfect gentleman. We had people taking part from other churches. It was, it was fabulous. Even a gorilla tried to get in on the, on the wedding. See Anastasia or John Sanders for more details. But we had a, a wonderful occasion. And I do enjoy weddings. It's one of the things that I most enjoy about, what, about being a minister. The privilege of helping and hosting two people to come and declare before God that how much they love each other. It's great. But weddings are also a bold declaration, a step of faith that I will love you. A coming together of beauty and of truth, and therefore goodness is there too in the mix. In that air yesterday, as, as in weddings of wanting the best, that sense of expectation, wishing. You can, you can sense it when you're at a wedding. That, does, that, that joy and that wanting the best for the couple. And then there's the stories. There's the telling of the stories and there's the generations of different people there from different, gathered at that time in that place to say love is the most important thing. We want to live in this and by this for the rest of our lives. And so we have all ages and little ones padding around in the midst of that context. Wonderful. Now last week we began our series in John's Gospel. And what a start. That first chapter of John. It's majestic and deeply mystical words that resonate with the very first words of Genesis. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Mind-stretching concepts, the Logos, the Word of God, they're outside of time and becoming part of the process of creation. And we noticed last week that John was writing this Gospel so that these things I've written may be that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, notice that word, important for John, in his name. John is interestingly different from the other gospel writers. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're more similar. Suddenly you read John, and John, in each chapter, he wants to present to you a portrait of Christ. He wants you to look deeply in each chapter, because each chapter he's put together in such a way that it says something particular about Jesus Christ. And John is a gospel, therefore, where with its beautiful sayings and its I ams, it's, it's been likened to a stream in which children can paddle and yet deep enough in which elephants can swim. So for the elephants present, 
please let's look again at the depth of John's gospel and see what it's saying. It's all its layers and levels about Jesus and about our life. Now, after such a lofty philosophical start that John has, what would you do next if your aim was to show that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? What would you choose out of Jesus' life to next demonstrate as a sign, as proof, that he is the Messiah? Might you go to one of his, or or his first preach, that occasion where he preached powerfully and people were moved? Maybe you'd choose a spectacular healing where people were blown away by, by him healing unexpectedly. Where would, where would you position the second chapter? What would you write in your second chapter? Well, come with me and let's look again as John takes us to a small village, probably a nondescript village in the first century Palestine where a family wedding is taking place. We don't even get to know the names of the couple. It's quite amusing. They don't matter so much. They're, they're an ordinary couple. And it's a village wedding. And because it's a village wedding, the whole village goes. Not because the couple are anything special, because they belong to the village. So the whole village goes to this wedding. And Jesus is there with his mother and his brothers. Interestingly, his father's not mentioned. And it seemed like his father died when Jesus was still young. We don't quite know for how many years Mary was a single mom bringing up the children. But they are all there. And then we hear, we hear this curious, we overhear this conversation between a mother and his son, which goes something like this. Mary, they've run out of wine. Jesus, oh, mom. You can hear it in the reading, can't you? Now, I don't think Jesus is prompting the miracle, but he's inviting, John's inviting the reader to think about the time at which Jesus is coming to show his glory. In the Synoptic Gospels, we have the Messianic secret where, if you remember, occasionally, it's curious, after he does a miracle, he says to people, don't tell people, don't tell them. My time has not yet fully come. My glory is not yet to be fully revealed. Something similar to that happening there. And so I believe this miracle at the wedding at this village took place without grand ceremony. I picture Jesus getting on Instructing the servants, probably getting behind the bar and filling up the, 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 those jars with 80 gallons. But when it happens, lo and behold, the water in the jars was tasted and it was wine. And not just any old wine, but Chateau Cana 55. And there are 70, 80 gallons of the stuff. And so there starts to be a murmur. Hold on, this, this is what we're drinking. Where, where's, where's this come from? Where has, who, what's happened? Who did this? The thing was, to run out of wine at that wedding would have been deeply shameful. Something that we, in our abundance in our culture, we find difficult to understand. And yet, the shame on that family would have been immense in the village. Everyone would have tutted and, you know, known them as the family whose, at whose wedding they couldn't even manage to give people a glass of, to drink. And so some scholars reckon it was because of their poverty, because they were an ordinary poor couple that they didn't have quite enough wine that Jesus did the miracle. Or optionally, it was because they were heavy drinkers. But it was at Cana that we, the Word became flesh and lived among us. 
just such a striking difference from chapter 1 to chapter 2. At Cana, the word became flesh and danced and drank wine and laughed and listened and celebrated human love. The timelessness of the first chapter. And here we find a scandalous particularity. In this village wedding, Jesus begins to show who he is and point to the glory of God. Jesus, the Word of God. Jesus, the Son of Man. Jesus, the wedding guest. Jesus, the mother's son. Jesus, the friend of the family. Jesus, who sets our feet a-dancing. How ordinary the situation was. How wonderfully ordinary to have Jesus at your wedding. But I believe that God enjoys weddings. Goodness, human companionship was his idea. One man, one woman. And it remains the cornerstone of society. And yet in the scene that we have, Jesus is deeply embedded in his culture, affirming it and carrying out this miracle. If you're at the wedding, you might have missed it. And only be murmuring, found out later as you tasted the wine, what was going on. Yes, as we said in the setting of the scene, God loves weddings. God loves parties because God loves us. He loves folk like you and me. Here is Jesus, the man for others. Or at least the man for the bar staff. Because in that situation, who would have been the first people that got it in the neck when the wine ran out? The people behind the bar. Yes, the family would have got it, but his attention to thinking about the smaller people, the whole situation. Jesus learning holiness by mixing with ordinary folks. How wonderfully different from the first chapter. Now, although I've highlighted some of the best of weddings, we have the whole gamut of life at weddings too. And we know maybe at that wedding in Cana, that the dancing bridesmaid had just been abandoned by her partner only weeks before and is hurting deep inside. Or the father that's buying drinks for people at the bar is only getting himself more into financial problem. But Jesus knows that, just as we do, that weddings bring out family tensions as well as family blessings. He knows that at weddings some people aren't there to celebrate stable relationships, but are there as much to settle for a one-night stand. Jesus knows just as we do that the joy of weddings can also bring out regrets and loneliness and pain. And Jesus wanted to be there at that wedding fully aware of all these things so that he could share in those meaningful little conversations over a drink where people pay attention to each other for once, where people talk about the raw and the real so he could put his arm around the sad person, kiss a worried person, Dance the lonely person and spread his love around. And isn't that why he came to earth? Jesus, there in the mix at a wedding in a village. This is the first sign in John's account of God's glory. Revealing his, the glory of Christ. The first 11 chapters of John are signs that John wants to show us. Say, look at this, look at this happening. This was not just a man. This is the Son of God. And so, on occasions like this, when water is turned into wine, the sun bursts through the clouds and shines straight at Jesus. 
When heaven is ripped open and when God's transforming power bursts into the present world and heaven and earth meet. And such moments aren't just necessarily what we'd call religious moments. Yes, we have moments like that when we read our Bibles and suddenly the connection between those words and our situation is breathtaking. Yes, it can be when we're quiet and we pray and we hear God's voice saying our name, reassuring us that in our situation, whatever we're facing, God knows and God cares and God loves us and has a purpose beyond what that we can presently see. But such moments also might be when we're outside at nature and we're awestruck by just how things look and in that moment there's something magical. Or when Paralympians triumph over their disability and celebrate together. Or when a kindness is shared between two strangers. Or, between, or when an adult listens to a child. Or when two people look each other full in the face and say, I will love you until my dying breath. Now let's dance. John's gospel is a gospel of love, of the Father's love for the Son. And the thing about it is that we are beckoned into that relationship to live in that love. John writing it was the person who had his head on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. This gospel is not neutral. It's presenting us with the love of the Father, demonstrated in the life of the Son, which we are invited to participate and to live in. Now, for those of you that are elephants, what did you notice as regards symbolism in that chapter? Because look again, it's littered with a deeper meaning. I mean, Jesus being the Son of God, there's the event and what happens, the water turned into wine. But look how John puts all these things around in that chapter that point to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is. Let me just quickly give you one or two of them. On the third day, right at the start... The third day, does that ring any bells? Of course it does. The scene is a foretaste of a heavenly banquet. The jars of purification. It's Jesus saying, I'm going to work within this religion, but, and I'm going to affirm that, but go beyond it. I'm going to take those very religious things that were used for cleansing, when people got concerned about doing the right thing, and say, hey, I want to go beyond that, because it's going to be about joy. It's going to be about abundant living. Not just about keeping yourself clean. That's what it says. That's what John's wanting us to look at as we look in this canvas of John chapter 2. And I find it beautifully symbolic that we've got the story of you've kept the best wine to last. Jesus again, the living wine of the kingdom, poured out for the life of the world. We have the prophets, we have the, we have the, the law that came, and then Jesus, the last wine, kept to last. And it's that word life that we'll come across upon several times read John's Gospel. And that wonderful statement in John 10.10 10 that ties up with our story of today. I have come that you may have life and life in all its fullness. This story presents to us a generous God. There was more than enough wine. How many gallons of it? It wasn't just generous. It was scandalously generous. Isn't that what God's about? 
Isn't it generous and scandalous that, that God chose to come to earth? And God chose to reveal his glory, not to a temple full of pompous priests or pent-up Puritans, but to a party full of, well, of all sorts. Isn't that scandalous? Isn't that remarkable? In the orderliness of that village wedding, here is the Son of God. And so at the end of the chapter, we read, the disciples saw his glory and believed. This is a deeply spiritual gospel. Each chapter invites us to look deeper at the words used because they tell us something of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it beckons us into a relationship of love between the Father and the Son. And Jesus invites us to live that way, live a life that's got a dimension of living that's that way, living in God's love. On Friday prayers, Lee and I were praying these words, come now and dwell with us, Lord Jesus Christ. And when you come in your glory, make us to be one with you and to share the life of your kingdom. Make us to be one with you that we may live your life and in your life. Not trying on our own, but living your life. Isn't that wonderful? We are Christians. We call ourselves Christians, Christ-like people. People that want to follow Christ, but to live in Christ's love. Not simply follow from a distance, but to participate in the love of the Father and the Son. That's what John wants us to be doing. May the life of Jesus dance within us. Set our attitudes and our hearts aflame with love with compassion, with joy. Our feet are dancing. And may we not close our eyes and think this is wonderful, but maybe open them and see just what's around us. Because around us, God's given us life. Life to see in a new way. Life to uncover for the depth that it is, for the gift that it is. And so I have here a prayer of awakening that we may be awakened to God's Spirit in our lives. Whatever the the grayness, the challenge, the ordinariness, the routine, the struggle, the pain, the lack of color, the lack of wine, the lack of money. May we pray these words so that we can see and feel as God feels and participate in that amazing love that John presents us with in his gospel. Can I invite you to join with me in saying these words? May the God of time and eternity, who gave us 24 hours in each day, enliven our senses so that we may truly see what we are looking at, taste what we are eating, listen to what we are hearing, face what we are suffering, celebrate the ways that we are loved and offer whatever we are doing so that the water of the present moment may be turned into wine.